the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Hurricane Breeding Ground found where the Coriolis effect allows left and right twisting storms to twist together and churn out baby youngins. Dragon Pros at Dragon Con, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have a roundtable discussion among the crew of Bain employees who went down to provide the Bain Books presence at this year's Dragon Con in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, Dragon Con is a big deal science fiction convention with over 75,000 attendees each year that's held down there. What's more, it's a big convention for Bain Books because we, there's a lot of Bain authors that, that make it to Dragon Con. We often have between 10 and 25 authors there whom we publish, and it's always a great get-together and a great time. Furthermore, Bain has a booth in the big show floor, and we use it for our authors to sign their books. We usually do this in conjunction with a bookseller so that people can buy the books, too. This year, and for the last several years, that bookseller's been the missing volume. Anyway, we sat down with the crew who went down there this year and wined and dined with the authors and met the fans and put on the Bain Roadshow, and sat on panels and generally showed the Bain colors. The Bain crew this year included executive editor Jim Menz, consulting editor David F. Sherarad, assistant editor Christopher Rocchio, and editorial assistant Grace Borger. It's a rollicking discussion of great time, so stay tuned for that. And it even has a little good-humored inside dishing on some of your favorite authors. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. The September Bane E-Arcs are here. Now, an E-Arc is the path that a major storm system takes when it hears there's a new anthology filled with Bane authors at its favorite bookseller in Tennessee. Why Hurricane Shot for Books in Tennessee is one of the wonders and mysteries of creation, and we'll never fully fathom it, but we should be glad it isn't somewhere in California. The thing would leave a wake of destruction across the entire United States just to read the next Honor Harrington. No, 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 that's not true at all. An eARC is an electronic advanced reading copy of a book. These are ebooks that we put on sale several months before the book is printed in order for readers to get to read their favorite authors and favorite series early, maybe with a few typos and infelicities still within the text. First is All the Plagues of Hell by Eric Flint and Dave Freer. Hell breaks loose. Orcasy is loose. The snake god of plague has been awakened by Lucia de Mano. With the venomous magic of Orcasy at her command, Lucia plots to marry and then murder the usurper, who now rules Milan, the Condantiere Carlo Sforza, known to friends and foe alike as the Wolf of the North. On his side, Sforza has only the skill and cunning of his physician, Francisco Turner, but will that be enough to save the Wolf of the North? For out there in the countryside of northern Italy, Orcisa is uncoiling all the plagues of hell. Also added is A Star-Wheeled Sky by Brad R. Torgerson. Fate of Humanity on the Interstellar Highway. 
Well over a millennia in the past, men and women fled Earth, escaping Armageddon. What they found, lost in some forgotten corner of the Milky Way, was the Waywork, an alien superhighway system between a closed sphere of stars. Now the five star states, which rule all that's left of humanity, are poised on the brink of another terrible war. It's a clash of civilizations as the future of the human race hangs in the balance. And finally out in EARC is Space Pioneers, an anthology edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Final Frontiers. Since the dawn of time, humankind has felt the urge to push at the boundaries of our world and discover what lies over the horizon. And since the dawn of science fiction, writers have wondered about the next frontier, the one that lies out there. Here, then, is a generous collection of stories that reach out in the unknown void, finding awe, wonder, other minds, even terror, but always going beyond the world we know to explore a universe strange, beyond the outermost limits of human imagination. Stories of brave men and women who risk all to explore, colonize, and settle the vast reaches of space. Stories by David Drake, Sarah A. Hoyt, Paul Anderson, Christopher Rocchio, and there's even one by me, Tony Daniel. It was first published back in Asimov's in the, in the late 90s, and it's one of my favorite stories I ever wrote, so uh, check that out, Space Pioneers. All the Plagues of Hell by Eric Flint and Dave Freer, A Star-Wheeled Sky by Brad Torgerson, and Space Pioneers, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio, all in eARC form, all ebooks that you can read now. They're available exclusively at Bain eBooks. Go to Bain.com and you can get them. I want to welcome Jim Menz, Grace Borger, Christopher Rocchio, and David F. Sherrod to the podcast. How's it going? Oh, not so bad. Yeah, everything's fine. It's good. Here comes the hurricane. Yes, that's right. Hurricane Florence is barreling in as we record this. By the time but the it's, show must go on. That's true. Sorry. We may be gone when this posts, actually. All dead. We'll see. Let's see how it goes. Um, what uh, These are... Uh, this is sort of the Bane crew, um, and this is the the folk that went to um, that went to DragonCon. That's what we want to talk about today. Jim Menz is um, Bane executive executive editor, I think is his title now. Grace is, um, I guess we should probably call it our editorial assistant or something like that, Amen. instead of mail clerk, uh, because she's been through the fires now. Of course, at Bain, it's never instead of, it's in addition to. There's always more work to be had for everyone. Mail is just one of the many things now. Um, And Christopher is uh, assistant editor. Assistant editor. Excellent. And David is, what are you, consulting editor or something like that, David? I don't, yeah. Yes, that's it. (laughs) That's okay. I say, (laughs) I say you are, and I think Tony says you are too, so therefore it is. You have been dubbed. Great. Okay. Well, so um, I guess maybe Jim, why why is Dragon Con such a huge Bane deal every year? What what's the deal? Why um, it, it seems like that we begin preparing for it the moment you everyone gets back. Well, it helps that we're all scrambling to get hotel rooms as soon as it wraps up. But part of the reason why it's such a big Bane deal is because it's such a big deal to the science fiction field. Um, there's tons of small conventions going on all over the place, uh, including, say, the World Science Fiction Convention, whereas Dragon Con's about 70,000, 80,000 people getting together, having a good time, and 
It's got everything. It's got live music round the clock. It's got drum circles round the clock. It's got a huckster's room that's as big as most Comic-Cons. It's got a ton of great programming and science fiction literature, science fiction shows, science fiction media. It's got comics. It's got artists. It's got it all. And the best part about it, uh, while Comic-Cons are perfectly fine as media shows that can be a wonderful chance to interact with folks, Dragon Con is Mardi Gras for us. It's Mardi Gras for the science fiction world. We get together and have a good time. And, well, we want to be a part of that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is comparable in size to uh, to the biggest Comic-Cons, right? Or in, uh, it's a little bit smaller. I think yeah, San Diego is Actually, about, it's only about half in terms of attendance as compared to San Diego, which caps out, I think, at about 150. But it is... Um, all those are run more as trade shows at a giant convention center. People shuffle through, and while there is a social scene, it, it isn't nearly as condensed because most of DragCon happens in the four, well, five, six main hotels where that's where all the programming is. That's where the concerts are. The Huckster's Room, while it's busy with thousands of people shuffling through, is actually a side note off to one uh, one uh, end of the convention where most of the uh, happenings are are elsewhere and the big ballrooms spread throughout all the different hotels it's a social thing is and it's a science fiction thing that's just for us our our genre um and the other thing is in the southeast and uh many many of our writers are located in driving distance so who did you meet grace uh at the uh, so you've been doing mail clerk duties for a while and, and your other stuff that you've now taken on um and you have been sending out things to a lot of these, uh, a lot of our writers who you've never set eyes on before, but you now have laid eyes on many of them. So, who? Yes. What was what was what was your list of uh, of folk? Uh, there honestly were so many. I don't know that I remember yeah. all of them. We well, met Weber. I did meet Weber. Um, I met Larry Korea. I met Tim Powers. I met. Uh, what about DJ Butler? Did you meet him? Yeah, I met DJ Butler, and he was really great. I met Mike Williamson. I met uh, Dr. Gannon. I met uh, Timothy Zahn. I met uh, Jody Lynn Nye. I met so many others. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. It's just such like, a long weekend. Did you, you did you meet Ringo, did you say? Yeah. I, did, I did meet Ringo. I can't believe I forgot Ringo, but I did meet him, and... Uh, uh, so many other people. Yeah. I will probably think of them yeah. later. It's probably easier to ask. It's probably easier to ask who wasn't there. Although maybe it's not quite the same as Liberty Con, but we had at least a couple dozen authors, all told, county people who write short fiction and anthologies and all the rest. Yeah. And although, and I, we've found that you are a geek, um, and have geek tastes, uh, which we didn't know of when we hired you. Uh, yeah, you're not you're not really from the science fiction world. What was it like to suddenly uh, be plunged into into that uh, uh, milieu? Honestly, it was it, in a sense it wasn't what I was expecting because I hadn't been to any convention before, and so I wasn't I didn't exactly know what was going to be going on, but. Uh, I did get prepped beforehand. Everybody told me, you know, this is a huge event. It's a big deal. Lots of people there. It's great. Uh, so honestly, it was a lot of fun and I had a great time and What'd I got... What you think of the costumes? 
the costumes were great, honestly. So many people with so many different um, inventive ideas on how to make up the same costume. You know, I saw so many different versions of Darth Vader or Deadpool, and everybody just kind of, you can tell they all uh, care a lot about what they're doing and their costumes, and everybody puts a lot of effort into it, and it was honestly really neat to see uh, all the different... uh, the different costumes, the different characters, and how much you could tell everybody really appreciated and cared about what they were doing. And it really just felt like a huge family, which was a lot of fun. Cool. So um, one of the things that we do there is we have the Bane booth. And um, so Christopher, you and David are now old hands at this. Um, what What is this? What do you do? How does it, I mean, and Jim, you know, basically starts planning <laughs> the moment his feet come back. He's hard at work but, right now uh, what, at this table. What do you do? Um, what does it mean to, to run that, that booth? And, and how is, uh, you know, you, what is this, your third, fourth time to go? Oh, this is my third year. So, yeah. The, the booth really is about reaching out to people who are already our readers, I think is our primary function. Um, we host signings at the booth. Uh, there are, you know, old readers from the Bain Bar on, on the website and other things will come around. And uh, just dedicated readers in general will come by. The first thing that starts happening Friday morning when the dealer's room opens is some of the same old faces will filter by and they'll come and get our signing schedule for the weekend because we'll do at least three, four signings a day at the booth, maybe five, and some of those with multiple authors. And so they'll want to come and update their book signings on their collections, you know, for their collections. And so we do a lot of that, um, but we also are trying to reach out to new readers, of course, because there are thousands of people moving on by all day, and many of them may not even be great readers, um, or big readers, rather. Uh, they may not uh, they may not have any idea who we are or have heard of very many of our authors. And so what we try to do is pitch them on our free library, which, for any of you listening who may not know what that is, on our website, we offer at least a few dozen uh, ebooks, completely free, usually the beginnings of some of our bigger series so that you can find new authors you might like and get into something that you hadn't uh, heard of before. So you're giving out drugs, basically. You know, you get I get that joke every time I talk about the free library on yeah. Twitter, and uh, I've heard it a thousand times. But yeah, I mean, it's the same model, right? The the, the first taste is free sort of thing. Oh, but, uh, you know, there are... <laughs> So what was the weirdest dang thing that happened uh, in the in the booth, in booth land? You could reach back to other years if you want to as well. As... Oh, well, my favorite booth story was from last year. Uh, we had some guy we thought walk off with a bunch of Larry Correa's books uh, from his signing without paying. And uh, Larry was first cotton onto this, and he'd grab, you know, he grabbed me and was like, Hey, Chris, you know, I, think, I think this guy just walked off with a bunch of books. And we were there, I was there talking to Alistair Kimball, who is one of Eric Flint's co-writers, and uh, in his day uh, day job, Alistair is a, uh, he's an FBI agent, and I was like, "Uh, Alistair, uh, could you, uh, like, do anything about this? And he was like, say no more, and uh, and vanished into the crowd, and and I, I kid you not. Five minutes later, he comes back with the guy, like, frog-marching him, holding him by the arm, and he has all the books. He's like, this is the one you were looking for? How he pulled him out of this crowd, because there were literally hundreds of people jammed into these aisles, I do not know. 
Uh, I had no idea who we were even looking for, but he came right back with him, uh, and we sorted it all out. It turned out he had paid, but he'd paid like way earlier, and we just lost track and everything. It was like how did so it was like how did you you know get him? And he's like, oh, that was easy. And then he you know pu- pulls his his blazer aside, and he's got his handcuffs and his badge right there, and he's like, I'm always ready. And it was the most bane thing. Yeah. Uh, because so many of our authors are veterans or still in the military, or we have we have a very specific set of skills. Yeah, protector um, sorts, guardian sorts, often. And you know I, where they came from. So I, I have sicked an FBI agent on a book thief. Well, that's pretty cool. So you spent some of the time there um, at Barge Tower. Um, hawking your new book. How yeah. was, uh, what is your new book, and uh, how did that go? Well, I um, I've got two faces, right? When I'm when I'm not assistant editor here at Bain, I am a a novelist over with Daw Books, which is a long story. I ended up selling the book uh, the same week I got my job here, which was you know not a bad week. And so my first book's called Empire of Silence. It's a space opera novel, sort of in the vein of Dune or Star Wars. And it's set in the far future, and it's the story of uh, this nobleman who runs away from home and then finds himself stuck in the middle of a war between human beings and the first aliens who have ever stood up to us in thousands of years. Uh, And he'll tell you, page one, he's the person who ended that war, and the story is sort of a memoir. It's why and how. And um, so I was working, like you said, up with Bard's Tower, which is another uh, bookstore booth that we work with sometimes. Um... Or if you ask its owner, Alexi will tell you that it's not a bookstore, it's a literary celebrity experience. And what we do is we try to offer, uh, this is my bad Alexi impression, we try to offer... Good. Not too bad. Uh, it's got like a Brooklyn, like an insane Brooklyn accent, right? No, I don't know. I don't think it's a Brooklyn accent. But he tries to offer fans their uh, uh, an, an opportunity to interact with authors directly. So rather than just have the books on shelves, like in your normal bookstore, the books are out on a table near the aisle, and the authors will try and directly engage with people passing by and hawk their own books or their friends' books if, you know, they're working side by side. So, like, I would hang out with uh, DJ Butler, you know, wrote Witchy Eye. We're pretty good friends, and we would try to cross-sell one another's books because it's a lot easier to talk up someone else's book than yours because you don't look conceited that way. Um, and so it, it, it's really, it was really fun. So I was there with writers like uh, uh, Kevin J. Anderson was there, um, which is cool for me because I was a big Star Wars fan growing up, and Kevin's yeah. books were some of the first books I ever read as a kid. So and it's Uncharted like, 1 and the Dragon. Yeah, and his, yeah, uh, uh, Uncharted. Sarah with Sarah Hoyt won the Dragon this year. Uh, David Weber's Call to Vengeance also won a Dragon Award, so we got, we got two here at Bain. Was and, and we scored five authors in the process because with the David Weber, it's the uh, one he co-authored with Timothy Zahn and Tom Pope from View 9. So there's three authors on that third book in the uh, a call, uh, the um, Manticore Ascendant series uh, called A Vengeance. And then, of course, Uncharted, which is the first novel in a new projected shared world series written by Kevin Anderson and Sarah Hoyt. So, yeah, two books, five authors, no waiting. That's cool, and uh, immediately got that on the uh, on the tip sheet, which feeds out to Amazon. So you should see that. So uh, David, you also have done your time at Bard's Tower, um, hawking um, the uh, the year's best anthology that you edit, that the year's best uh, military and adventure SF. 
And tell us a little bit about the uh, the the reader award and and what you do at Dragon Con every year with that. Yeah, so this is sort of my um, not that I need an excuse, but my reason for being there, aside from helping out with uh, all the other Bain stuff at the booth and being on panels and such, is um, so as you said, I've, I've edited Year's Best uh, for this is the fourth year and. Um, and uh, part of what we did is we wanted to, with the book, as we've talked about on this podcast, we wanted to kind of find a way to engage the readers a little bit more and then also to kind of honor the author, uh, specific author in the book. And so what we came up with was uh, the uh, Year's Best Military Adventure SF Reader's Choice Award. And what that is is uh, the table of contents. The book is essentially the ballot. And readers can go um, on to Bain.com slash Year's Best Award every year and vote for their favorite story. And uh, we tally those up, and we uh, give out an award at the Bain Traveling Roadshow, which is where uh, at Bain, it's a, uh, at, excuse me, at DragonCon, uh, it's our big sort of, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for, center showcase for all of our upcoming books and new books and new cover art and exciting things like that. And uh, what I get to do is stand up in front of the room of uh, Bane fans and announce who won the Reader's Choice Award. And uh, the author gets a plaque, and we also uh, give them $500 in cash. And uh, it's always been a lot of fun to do. Uh, the first year, Mike Williamson won. David Drake won the second year, and the third year was uh, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And then this year was really exciting, um, which was that Casey Izell won for her story, uh, Family Over Blood. Uh, and it was fun because she's a newer writer, and she's someone that I keep hearing people say she's someone to watch out for, and I agree. And she was also there, and it's always nice to have the person there to hand them the stuff. So uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, we're going to be. We also announced that we're doing Volume Five uh, next year. So um, if readers haven't had a chance to vote these last four years, they can pick up Volume Five, and uh, we will be doing it again. So, yeah. give, give a little background on Casey. We actually published her first story in the anthology Citizens a few years back, and she's had stories in a number of other Bane anthologies. And, in fact, she's the co-anthologist with Larry Correa for next year's Noir Fatal. And she's also one of those members of the Been There, Done That Club, having been a helicopter pilot for the U.S. Air Force. So, yeah, you'll definitely be hearing more from Casey because she's got the writer chops and she's got the right life experience that seems to work pretty well when it comes to military science fiction and other adventure stories. Yeah, I think it's Captain Casey. Is it is, Ma correct? Major. 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 That's right, though. So, Jim, um, a lot of uh, a lot of what goes on other than the booth is uh, people going to panels and uh, programming and such. Uh, you are on panels as an as a as an eminence <laughs> occasionally. Um, what what is that like? Is it different than other conventions, or is it the same sort of thing, or is it? Uh, um, what I love about DragonCon is, given its size and how many people show up for the concerts and the big media personalities that come every year from the major shows and major movies and all that, it'd be really easy for them to pretty much ignore literature, but they don't. They have multiple tracks about literature. There's a fantasy literature track, science fiction literature track, the time travel track, the military science fiction track. There are literally over a dozen tracks that deal 
with books, which is great. And I'm on, you know, a number of program items. And in many ways, it is like other conventions, the difference being that there are a ton of great authors there, not even just the main ones. <laughs> we have authors from across the scope, publishers from, uh, you know, uh, almost every science fiction house had. There are authors from any of those there. Um, programming is usually very smartly run, put together well, and you have packed rooms. I mean, it's a kind of panel where, depending on the convention, you may only have 12 to 20 to 30, 40 people at DragonCon, you're going to have 100 plus, maybe even 200, depending on the room and what the track is. And that's something that's going on deep in the bowels of the Hyatt, two floors below where the concerts are, where if you don't know about it, you might not even be aware. And yet, it's still probably one of the best attended science fiction literature conventions in the country, even if you ignore all the mainstream stuff and all the media stuff and all the other stuff going on and all the other ballrooms and all the other hotels. Just what's going on in that Hyatt base, basement with what's uh, just for the science fiction convention, the, the books, uh, it, it outstrips almost any convention I can think of. Did you do a panel? Yeah, it was on two. Cool. What, what, was the, what were the panels? Uh, I did one on uh, changes in publishing. Uh, Jim was on that too, actually. We were representing not changing because we were the traditional publisher guys. Everyone else was indie, you know, self-pub. So uh -huh. that was interesting. And I did one about genre distinctions in fantasy, which uh, I got in some trouble on because I said that hard magic is not magic, um, which is very contentious. Uh, there was some audibly indrawn breaths when I said that. You hear the sharpening of knives. Um, I will say this, it, it do, I do love the delicious irony of being, Bane being painted as traditional. While we play with the big boys in our, and, and work in the traditional environment, obviously, with our e-books and such, we've kind of been ahead of the curve for you know, 15 plus years now. And yet, indeed, at that panel with what's going on with self-publishing, we are, we are the old stodgies. <laughs> We're the old stodgies who insist that books actually make money yeah. and, that ha and that they have readers. And, and editing and, yeah, and editing and, and all that stuff. Although, uh, right. representing the Crazy small press fashions. who came out of independence, there was Chris Kennedy, and he certainly knows his stuff. Started yeah, as a sure. self-pub, made his mistakes just like everybody does, but learned from them, and these days is his own publishing imprint, which you can find available on BaneEbooks.com. That's right. We distribute him. Because so he's now. one of those guys, the cream that rises from the... From the That's uh, right. Well, well we, we distribute many... Uh, yeah. Many many small presses that that have figured out how to do it right. Um, so what about what about the social stuff that's going on outside of of all this uh, all this hawking hawking and yeah. and uh, one of the great things about DragonCon there is so much stuff going on. Um, of course, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made about seven years ago when I said to Tony, you know, we really should have a booth. And, well, now we have a booth, so I don't get to go out and have as much fun at late night as I usually do because <laughs> we have a lot more responsibilities. Although this year I had uh, a, a distinct pleasure of being invited backstage for the Crew Shadows concert. Uh, shout out to Brent and Rogue. Thank you so much for a great night. Uh, now that I'm north of 50, staying up to a, for a concert that starts at 1 a.m. isn't nearly as common as it was, say, a decade ago. It was a lot of fun to do that, and luckily it was a day I could actually sleep till 10 afterwards. So getting to bed at 4.30 didn't kill me quite as much as it used to. Yeah. But, yeah, there's so much going on. I mean, like I said, the Crew Shadows concert, one of the key concerts, one of the best attended concerts, and it starts at 1 a.m. 
and right next door is the drum circle that doesn't stop and right below that is there's always stuff going on um you know even grace who lent as a newbie to the convention lent a hand helping out with the staff volunteering as well providing hospitality and maybe she has a few things to say about that and there's the bane bane bar folks that are uh oh yeah that are there um do they did they have a, a specific uh suite this yeah, time? yeah they did although this year um instead of just calling it barfly central and for those of you who don't know that term bane's bar which of course has been an online discussion board that may or may not date back to the arpanet i cannot confirm that um, but that being said, we've had a very active online group of fans for decades. And some of those fans have had a suite for a long time. They open up for hospitality. Although this year it was called Speaker's Speakeasy. Um, part of that is because uh, Speaker to Lab Animals, a.k.a. Rob Hansen, a.k.a. Uh, Ted Roberts, whose uh, nonfiction uh, and fiction have been found on the Bain website and in Bain anthologies. Uh, but these days he's also being published by other publishers with some of his fiction. And so they went with the name Speaker Speakeasy just because they were also doing something with Chris Kennedy and the Four, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Although, you know, that's still selling books through BaneEbooks.com. We're perfectly fine with that as well. And, yeah, they have that open for our hardcore fans who come to the convention and get a chance to hang out. I mean, last year one of the true highlights for me was spending four hours in Barfly Central Chatting with Jerry Purnell, which, you yeah. know. I'm, a, lot, a lot of the Bane writers go by Barfly. Yeah, a bunch of them. And not just Bane writers. I, that's where I, you know, I, I've seen Lorca Hamilton up there on more than one occasion um, and, and others. I mean, it's one of those places where you know you can go and relax and just hang out. They, they do try and keep it on the down low. You, you need to know the right people to get it. It's not just an open party. But if you listen to this podcast, you probably know some of the people that run this yeah. or at least can track can, them if down. If you get on the... You know, if you get get on get Bain's on the bar, discussion yeah, board, get on the discussion board. You can find out all about and it. And it's certainly something that if you're going to go to Dragon Con next year, you could you could easily find out where the where absolutely. The bar, the and uh, if you go on the night of the kilts and corsets, be sure you're wearing a kilt or corset. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> or both. But please wear underwear. <laughs> what else? Uh, what else was? Uh, that, I mean, we should probably talk about the parade. I don't know if any of y'all went this time. Um, I was working. I was working Everybody at the booth during the parade. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a giant parade through downtown Atlanta of yeah. all the costumes. Yeah, Saturday morning. They shut down downtown Atlanta. They have almost a quarter million people show up for this, and it's a bunch of amazing costumes. I didn't go this year. In order to get a seat and get a view, you need to get out there early. Yeah, you got to um, In years past, we actually did for our 30th anniversary – we did. Uh, we had an entry in the parade, the cosplayers of Bane, and people dressing up from the Black Tide Rising universe, from the Honor Harrington universe, from um, it wasn't the Imperium. It was one of other Jody Lynn Nye's older fantasy series that's escaping me, um, and then a few others. And we had about thirty cosplayers, and we actually marched in the parade. And I'll tell you, that was a great way to experience it because you got to see just the throngs of people. I mean, these are, you know, plenty of those folks probably aren't what you consider hardcore SF fans, but they shut down downtown Atlanta yeah. for us to get our geek on. It's kind of amazing. Come, come to, if people in Atlanta just come to this. Yeah, people just come to the parade. Indeed, yeah. Mo, a lot of the attendees of DragonCon try and avoid the parade because it's actually too crazy and too crowded. From In my case, I actually had programming, although at least this year it wasn't programming that was actually on the other side of the parade route. I've had... Many an adventure trying to get around the parade to get to a program lineup. Yeah. 
It's really fun to, if you, especially for kids. Yeah, um, the costuming is amazing. Sure. It really is. If you want to bring some snacks <laughs> and water. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tony, I just think kind of piggybacking on that kind of comment, people who haven't been to Dragon Con, you or some or something comparable. It's just crazy. If you picture those scenes in like a movie where you see like downtown Manhattan and everybody's packed and they're commuting and you're shoulder to shoulder walking, it's like that in Atlanta. Only three quarters of the people are dressed up like Star Trek or Star Wars <laughs> or, or Pokemon characters, right? It's yeah. like you dropped into an alternate universe. <laughs> it's a lot of fun and it's very weird <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, one of the other things uh, that that we get to do uh, at, at conventions, especially this one, is uh, is go out and eat with the writers. So, uh, you guys did some of that. Um, what was uh, who who'd you hang out with? Grace and David and uh, Christopher um, and Jim. Jim hang out with everyone because that's what Jim does. But, uh, so my favorite story of this entire, I think maybe my favorite Dragon Con story, period, is um, I'm a big into tiki stuff. And so I always like try to get us to go to Trader Vic's as a group, usually on uh, Thursday. And so we had a group there. I think we had, we were supposed to have eight, but we squeezed ten people in. And uh, Dave Butler was there. Jim was there. Uh, everyone on this, besides you, Tony, podcast was there. Yeah. Well, I went to I went with to it with Google. you uh, when I was there last year. Yeah, you've definitely been. I just mean this time. Yeah. But so we were all sitting around the table and we're talking about various things, and somehow we got on the top the topic of religion, which you're typically not supposed to talk about at the dinner table because it's so contentious, and you know you don't want people to fight, and everyone's just talking about it so calmly, <laughs> and uh, we've got a Mormon, some lapsed Catholics, some atheists. Lutheran, non-denominational. We didn't have, you know, so, you know, and everyone's very calm discussing this. Okay, we didn't really debate much, just sort of talked about our, our backgrounds and stuff. And then the conversation moves on, you know, completely civil. And then someone brings up Star Wars. Someone says, I kind of like The Last Jedi. And I killed them. And not later. <laughs> That's the real religion. Okay. We had to, like, we... <laughs> We had to forcibly shut the conversation down because it was getting so heated that we yeah. couldn't talk about it politely. Sectarian Maybe violence. Maybe gives you a feel for the, the kind of things that go on at Dragon Con. <laughs> yeah, Aaron Michael Ritchie's dead now. There's faith and then there's belief. <laughs> he's actually, he's okay. Aaron, Aaron's a good guy, but, but he is dead now. Um, <laughs> So um, one of the big things that we do is we take out all the writers to a gigantic uh, get-together. What was that, Jim? Where was that? Who was the... uh, A few years ago, we, we managed to convince Pity Pat's Porch, which is located right across the street from the Weston Hotel and right next to America's Mart where the dealer's room is, to open up just a little bit early so that we can do a big brunch for all our people who are attending the con. 
And by all our people, I believe, what was our final number on headcount? 40 something? Uh, 48, I think. 48, and I think a couple extra showed up actually. It was about 50. So we had almost 50 people show up for brunch. And Pity Pat's Porch is this wonderful place that does good old down home southern cooking. I look forward to the black and catfish every year. Um, they also have all sorts of good stuff set up for us, and it's just plain old Southern hospitality. We used to do it in one of the hotel restaurants. We bounced around to different hotel restaurants, but, man, uh, big shout-out to Pity Pat's Porch. They're really great for lunch and dinner, and they do a great job of taking care of us, and we have all the peoples, um, all our authors. We invite any of the artists that are free. Um, and spouses. And spouses, of course, and and other, and even people who are, you know, just contributing to anthologies at the moment, people like Casey Azell and and others, Chris Smith, who you'll see those names popping up on novels in the upcoming years, but right now are just short story writers for us. And uh, we just have a good good time, spend a few hours having great food and great conversation. I got a chance to sit down and chat with Larry Niven, John Ringo, and Larry Correa about politics, which was always a good time. Pretty cool, pretty cool. So uh, one of the things that I always notice about, and Grace, maybe you can comment on this, is um, is that it's quite a it's an expedition to go because we're our editorial offices are close enough that, that we drive, um, but it's it's like uh, sort of like going on safari. Um, what and and Jim is uh, making sure that everything is packed very. I don't know, man. It's like this engineering background he has, or something that, that comes out. It's Tetris. But hold on, are you saying safari? Safari? Are you saying that science fiction fans are animals, Tony? That is the wild. Kingdom. Just the ones that think that, that the last. Jedi I think wild kingdom is fair cops, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So what what is it like to to uh, get ready to go and maybe to come back, but. There, as you've said, there's a lot involved in it. We've got to make sure we have the right promotional material. And if we don't have it, we have to have things made. We have to gather it all up. And, you know, we've already got books and we've got things in the office. So we have to make sure we have a dedicated spot for all the Dragon Con material that we're bringing. And then, you know, we kind of get it together and Jim gets the van uh, and... He is much better packing than I am. So I'm in charge of getting it together, boxing it up, and making sure it's labeled. And uh, Jim's in charge of loading it into the van because I would be hopeless at that. But uh, it, it's definitely a learning experience because sometimes you forget one or two things that you don't think are a huge deal. But then you realize, oh, well, I probably needed a few pens if we're going to be having authors signing books. So it's a learning experience. And uh it seems like a, a van full of promo material that people are have to find a place in somehow. It's like they're, they're you're living in the ecosystem of the promo material. Yeah, just just a bit. Um, yeah, it, it, the the back of the van was kind of full. Although I didn't go last year, but I heard that it was much better ride than last year. Yeah. The good news was that we we get the big old passenger van. And we got an old school passenger van, and I'm not saying we did remove those seats because I believe our rental agreement says we we should not do that. But we seemed to have a lot more elbow room because we weren't trying to pack in every little inch of space around seats that may or may not have been in the van, which made our life a lot easier. We should also have mentioned, I just thought of it, uh, that Gray uh, Reinhardt also went down with us. He is our uh, slush master general, um, and he's always a he's always a 
filking at conventions. He's yep. a well-known filker. Uh, if you don't know what filking is, check out some of the previous podcasts that Gray has hosted. If, if I hadn't had the good fortune of being backstage at the Crew Shadows concert, the undoubtable, undoubtable highlight for me would have been watching Gray up on stage with Peter Beagle. And I actually got to listen to Peter Beagle sing Innkeeper's Song, inspired by his my favorite novel of his, Innkeeper's Song. Um, and that was a very, very special. And that was something I knew nothing about, but happened to be with Gray from, I don't even know, we were on some program item together or ran into each other outside programming. And I asked him where he was off to. He was like, oh, I'm going to be singing with Peter Beagle. I'm like, hmm, well, I'm supposed to be meeting somebody in 20 minutes, but I'm going to text them and tell them I'm going to be late. And that was uh, very special. Gray, uh, who uh, not only, of course, is Celeste Master General, also a writer in his own right, and is, of course, a terrific filker, and you can find his stuff out there. Uh, he's done a number of songs for us. Uh, he actually did an amazing song that opened up Liberty Con's convention this year. There's a great Monster Hunter National song. There's a song about Bane Books. There's also, I think, one of my favorite songs of his, which is actually Finding Serenity, a Firefly song. Oh, man, you can find his music out there. It's yeah, and uh, we it. featured every one of the songs on his last CD on the on the podcast over the course. Of- exactly. So what what else should what what else should we talk about Dragon Con that is um, that's uh, that I haven't covered yet? David, do you have any? Uh... No, no, uh, not particularly. I will say, you know, you were talking about meeting authors, and you know, I. Uh, I'm still new enough to this, and I think, Christopher, I can speak for you, that although I try to keep my sense of decorum, I'm still getting kind of excited, uh, you know, meeting some of these uh, people who I've, you know, I've always enjoyed reading. And um, I think, hands down, uh, to me, it seemed like everybody that I talked to uh, on the Bain side was most thrilled to get to actually meet Tim Powers because, you know, as one, we all love his stuff, but then also because he's new to Bain. And so, um, you know, obviously I, I've known Mike Williamson and Don Ringo and for quite some time going to Dragon Con. So, you know, seeing them again is great. But, you know, uh, Tim Powers was new to most of us, so we were all kind of, you know, uh, getting a little excited there. I know uh, Dave Butler was also uh, pretty pretty thrilled to get to meet uh, Tim. So, um I just want to put in a plug for Powers because we do have his books coming out. He's, he's new to the Bain family, and so it was it was exciting to get to sit down and, and talk with him a little bit. So. And just to put that in perspective, I, I too am a huge Tim Powers fan, and I got to say, he is one of the most important fantasists of the twentieth, twenty first century, the latter half of the twentieth century. And if you haven't read his work, well, luckily you can find it now from Bain. Um, I. Definitely recommend start with his collection because it just can't go wrong. There's so many great short stories in there. Down and Out from Purgatory. Down and Out of Purgatory, the collected Purgatory. stories of, uh, of Tim Powers. And, and then we've got a new novel from him, bringing out some of his classics that I may have worked on back in the 90s, loosely at the, when I worked for Tor, uh, Expiration Date, and Earthquake Weather. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I mean, he, Gene Wolfe, these are some of the most important fantasists that have been writing for the last three, four, well, in Gene's case, six decades, yeah. um, and people that you absolutely should be reading. The collection is now nominated for the uh, World Fantasy Award for for the upcoming year, and uh, he's he's the previous winner of two other World Fantasy Awards, so this would be his third if, he, if the collection wins. 
so it's cool. I will definitely be going back next year. Are you going I... to bring your husband who has no idea? <laughs> <laughs> Jim says yes. We'll see. We okay. will see. Um, but I did greatly enjoy it. And I got to meet a lot of really neat people. I got to see a lot of really cool costumes and really see the science fiction family coming together as a family, which I really enjoyed. So it definitely left me with a very good impression of conventions. And I will be back next year. We've spoiled her now. She's not going to really, she's going to get to one of these smaller regional conventions and see 800, 1,000 people and say, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it's it's really the apart from Liberty Con, which has a whole bunch of Bane writers, um, even more surprising. Dragon Con is a place where you can sort of see this this family of writers that that the that we Bane has drawn together and that 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 often draw on each other um, for inspiration and friendship as they, as they. I mean, and some of them just are co-writing with each other. <laughs> I, I believe the number this year at the Bane reception at Liberty Con was 12% of the convention <laughs> because they just had that many folks there who work with Bane or uh, artists and all the rest. Oh, did anybody go to the Dragon Awards? Did we? I, I had programming opposite, did so I didn't. No, I had, I had programming, too. Did you too. see anybody see the statue? Yeah, I did. Um, I, saw. I saw Kevin Anderson's Dragon Award up when I was working at Wordfire, um, which you've never seen the Dragon Award. It's this cool sort of blown glass Thing that looks like a flame, um, maybe about maybe about ten inches high, uh, weighs about half a ton, and and Kevin was up there uh, showing it off. He was really excited about it. It's really one of the best looking uh, awards in science fiction, fantasy, dumb. Uh, it's uh, it's they're, they're really cool looking. Uh, so he was up there uh, taking pictures with it and his fans and stuff. Yeah, they're kind of they're designed and they're they're not just like ordered out of a trophy. Uh, trophy shop catalog. They're really pretty. Or hacked together from car parts. Yeah. Or, yes. or something you bought at Target and put a plaque on. So, yeah. Which we would never do with our Reader's Choice Award for the, uh, for the, for the year's best, but, but the 500 bucks goes a long way to making whatever the plaque looks like look really nice, right? Yeah. So. And for the Bane Fantasy Adventure Award... Plaque. While it may come out of a catalog, I will point out the name of the trophy is the Excalibur Trophy. So I feel it's justified. Heck yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, ours are beautiful. The Dragon Awards are really special. They look like something that a glass designer kind of came up with. So, David, you seem to come alive at Dragon Con. So maybe you could have the last word. I don't know. You are the kind of guy that likes to hang out. Go to places like tiki places and order rum drinks and uh, hang out with writers and talk and uh, and and you got away from your two screaming children that you take care of all the time also, um, who are wonderful ch- children I, I'm sure. But um, yeah, ouch. what was what was your sort of sum up the Dragon Con experience for yourself at least? Okay, I, yeah, I don't know. It's just a lot of fun. It would normally be exhausting, but like you said, I've got two little kids, so it's actually sort of a break for me. And I think the, the big thing to me is, as Jim's pointed out, is there's a lot of media stuff, which is very cool, but th- th- they still have kept this core of the of the literature, and they really care about writers there, and that's great. And and the thing to me is, I you know, I'm in I'm calling in here. I'm not in 
North Carolina. I'm in Austin, Texas. And uh, there's a great community of writers down here, uh, science fiction writers as well. But like you said, I got two kids, so I don't get to go and hang out and talk shop as much. So it's always invigorating to me to get to go and see these people who are doing the same thing or uh, as I am or doing the same thing on a bigger scale that I aspire to. And I always just come away, um, like Grace said, with this great feeling and just really re-energized to, uh, to dive in and, and, do, and work on stories and uh, work on a novel. And um, I think that's part of the fun for me is seeing what other people are doing and, and getting excited about this and sort of recharging the batteries in a weird way. Though physically your batteries are always very drained after it, but mentally I, it's always a very exciting experience in that way. Yeah, and if I could add something, I think that my favorite thing about this convention especially, and, and Liberty Con to an extent as well, but conventions in general, is that I do get to meet people who are uh, you know, Bane fans in particular, but fans in general, and they're always really you know excited about what it is we do here as a company and about our authors and the books we put out, and that's always really, it's really good, it's really nice to see because... Uh, you know, great working here, but you know it's a job sometimes, and uh, and meeting people to whom what we do matters so much is really is really edifying, and um, I, I I really enjoy meeting those people. And it's like you know, when you're in the office or me sitting in my you know spare bedroom at home working on something, you can forget how cool this really is. Yeah, so that that's what I mean. Seeing that reminds you. You know, yeah, exactly. Uh, for those of you who've never been to DragonCon, I will point out that if there are any rooms still available in Hyatt, they'll be coming available, I believe, on October second. If you go to the DragonCon website, they'll give you that date. So, and there are plenty of overflow hotels out in the distance. If you want to go to what is essentially Mardi Gras for SF fandom, and that is SF fandom of whether movies, TV, books, costuming. All the flavors of science fiction fandom is available at DragonCon in spades. And if you've never been, boy, are you in for a treat. And thank you all for, uh, for sharing with us your, uh, your experience. And I hope, I hope people will come and, and, and meet the writers and, and meet, meet the Bane crew next time. And Christopher Rocchio, Grace Borger, David F. Sherrod, and Jim Mintz, thank you so much for uh, talking about DragonCon and, and the Bane presence there. Well, thank you, Tony. You're welcome. Yeah, anytime. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok 
but Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. It is rather impressive, isn't it? He hadn't heard the Lord Protector return. Is Devadas? That boy is too stubborn to die. As determined as he is to make up for his father's failures, it wouldn't surprise me if someday he was given my office. Ashok turned back to the carving. I don't understand this. Of course you wouldn't. This map comes from the time before the demons fell to the world. It was forbidden to speak of the time before the law in anything but the vaguest of terms. The acolytes only learned of it in passing because it had been a dark and wicked time, so corrupt that it still influenced lawbreakers today. The Age of Kings. Before that even. The houses were tribes back then. Fighting the demons is what forced us to name a king. It wasn't until long after we drove the demons into the sea that we discovered kings could be nearly as bad. We haven't been taught much about those days. Surprisingly, Ratul didn't yell at him for concentrating on frivolous, useless things, and to the Lord Protector, anything that wasn't fighting or preparing to fight seemed frivolous. Instead, Ratul joined him beneath the map. In ancient times, man had settled across the whole of the world. We were one of nine continents. There wasn't one nation like there is now, but hundreds of them. A multitude with different ways, different languages, traditions, different color skins. They even had different laws. They fought wars against each other, traded goods and thoughts, even animals. It was routine for man to travel across the sea in mighty ships. That's illegal. Not to mention stupid, Ashok stated dismissively, even though he was talking to a superior. Not in those days. The oceans were just large bodies of water, nothing more, until there was a war that consumed the heavens, and the demons were defeated by the gods and cast down. Gods? Ashok asked. Advocating the existence of such things was highly illegal. I speak metaphorically, of course. Regardless of where they came from, there was a time before demons and a time after. They fell from the sky and began to destroy everything. Across the entire world, cities burned and men fled before them. They nearly exterminated us. It wasn't until we used the black steel to drive them into the water that the oceans became hell. The demons have owned the sea ever since. Do you know where black steel comes from? Despite spending years with three pounds of it riding on his hip, nobody had ever been able to explain it to him. There are only fantastical tales by those deluded enough to worship false gods. Ratul answered a little too quickly. It was hard to imagine this ancient world of traveling foreigners and no supreme law to rule them all until it had begun raining demons. And Gruvidal had been forged in those days, and it still remembered them. 
Ashok would have liked to see what the world had been like, but the memories locked in his sword were limited to battle after battle and nothing beyond. Ashok could relive every fight of every bearer, but he'd never understand what any of them had been fighting for. What do the fanatics say about the origins? Ratul gave Ashok that heavy-lidded glare, letting Ashok know there would be no good answer to that question. The demons destroyed most of civilization, and what history survived were questionable at best. They're locked away in the Capitol Library now, under the careful eye of the archivist's order. The Age of Kings was based on lies, so the records that passed through their priests' corrupt hands were tainted until everything was twisted to serve their greed. Regardless of where black steel comes from, ever since our victory, man has controlled the land and demons have held the sea. We don't try to cross the water and they are not allowed to walk upon our land. This arrangement has held for fifty generations. Scanning the dots on the other lands, Ashok tried to take it all in. Some of them cast much larger shadows than Vadal City, and the census said nearly a million people lived there. It was hard to imagine a city even bigger. What happened to the people in all those other continents? Who knows? Dead more than likely. The demons nearly ended us here. Perhaps other nations weren't so lucky. Did they discover magic like we did? Maybe in those other places the demons won, and now those slimy things are the ones living on land. That would be trespassing. They should be punished. Ratul actually appeared amused by that. I admire your commitment, but sadly that's a bit beyond our jurisdiction to enforce, Ashok. For now, Ashok thought to himself, he couldn't abide the idea of anything, demon or human, flouting the law. Regardless, if any foreigner survived like we did, we'll never know. Crossing the sea is impossible, so for all practical matters, we're all that remain. You know this. Mindaran must have covered it in your lessons. Briefly. They didn't waste too much of the Acolytes' precious training time on ancient history. Protectors were focused on enforcing the rules now, not dwelling in the past. How one got to the destination was not nearly as important as maintaining order once there. Myself, I'm a student of these things. I've read everything available about the ancients and sought out the best scholars in the capital to discuss our history. That was a surprise. Normally, Ratul only seemed interested in teaching them how to kill people more efficiently. It was hard to picture him actually enjoying something. I've been fascinated by the subject my entire life. If I'd not been obligated to the order, I might have made a fine archivist. But enough of this. There is one final test for you. Ratul walked away. Ashok hesitated. From the top of the mountain, he'd been able to see into the lands of several great houses. At the time, he'd not realized how truly small they really were. Taking one last longing look at the map, Ashok hurried and limped after his instructor. 
More torches had been lit along the corridor. It led further into the mountain. I'm curious, Ashok. Why did you attempt the test so early? He was required to give only honest answers to his superiors. I don't think I can last another year without my sword. Atul grunted. Thought so. That didn't answer whether he'd get Ungruvedal back yet or not. But it wasn't Ashok's place to question. He would prove himself, or die trying. They entered another, smaller chamber. The room was plain, but the shape of it gave the impression it had once been used for more. There were strangely shaped alcoves all around the interior, empty now, their original purpose a mystery. Ratul gestured toward an altar in the center of the room. Behold, the heart of the mountain. It was so black that it seemed to burn a hole in his vision. The hungry darkness seemed to absorb their torchlight. He had to turn his head a bit so that he could actually see it from the corner of his eye. The heart appeared to be a jagged, twisted mass of metal, the size of a child. It was the biggest piece of black steel Ashok had ever seen, big enough to forge a dozen swords or thousands of valuable fragments. Some people had a sense for magic, and though Ashok had never been naturally gifted in that way, even he could feel the energy radiating from the heart. The metal device twitched. As he watched, it twitched again. It really was beating. This is the Order's greatest weapon, old as your precious Angruvadal, from the time when magic was common. We've kept it for over a thousand years. This is what makes protectors more than men. When you touch it, you will take part of its power with you for the rest of your days. It will sting you and infect your blood. The influence of the heart will be yours to call upon for the rest of your life. It can make you stronger, hardier, and hone your reactions. With sufficient concentration, you can direct it to empower your senses, but it can only do so much at a time. You will heal faster and even survive wounds that would be fatal to a normal man, but it will not make you immortal. An injury sufficiently devastating will still kill you. It may stay deaf for a time, but nothing can postpone death forever. Well, nothing legal, at least. I have already been touched by magic. Indeed, for one such as you, the defensive power of the heart, combined with the offensive skill bestowed by your ancestor blade, I can only imagine what the Order could accomplish with such a weapon at its disposal. There was no better cause than justice, so Ashok didn't mind the idea of a weapon in its behalf. What if I'm unworthy? Ratul had a laugh like a dog's bark. The Order decides who is worthy. And if you weren't, I'd have had the Guardians toss you off that cliff. Magic can make you tougher, but it can't give you character. That's why our program is so harsh. Flawed acolytes must be weeded out. The heart does not care about birth or honor. I imagine a castless could take from it if one was clever enough to find his way in here. Only a bearer would think of such a question. Don't worry. It is not like Angruvadal. 
The heart has no opinions of its own. It was not his place to disagree, but in Ashok's experience, all black steel had ghosts inside of it. Some of them were just louder than others. He peered closer into the burning darkness. There was something wrong with the heart. There was a weakness to it. Lord Protector, you can see magic inside of things, can't you? I have that gift, yes. How much magic is left within the heart? Ratul didn't respond. Ashok looked over to see that the master was scowling. Less than when I first saw it for myself. But enough. When magic was worn too thin, its container would fail. What happens when the heart shatters? The order will die, Ratul said simply. Ashok moved away from the heart. Then I will not use up any for myself. Save the magic for someone better. I appreciate the sentiment, but that isn't how it works. No, Ashok, this is your final test. To become full-fledged protector, the order requires this. I'm one of the few who can see magic, which means that when you touch the heart, I will see you for what you truly are. This is necessary for the good of the order and for the sanctity of the law. This is a command? Yes. Ashok nodded, stepped toward the heart of black steel, and placed his hands on it. The world turned to blood. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jedkowitz. And the absolute value of a number line that twists through 53 dimensions and has the sign of a negative smiley face on one end and a positive frowny face on the other. Plus thanks and plaudits to Jim Menz, David F. Sharrod, Christopher Rocchio, and Grace Borger. The Baying Bane crew responsible for all things Bane books, including keeping the authors happy and readers coming at Dragon Con. Please join us here next time at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Hey!